You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We're the editors of Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News, with each about 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we cover the five biggest stories in manufacturing and the implications they have on the industry moving forward. First of all, if you could please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by giving the podcast a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use. Finally, to email the podcast, you can reach us, any of us, Jeff, Anna, or David at IN.com, and please put email the podcast in the subject line. Anna, how are you doing this morning? Good, good. It's Friday. Good yeah, it's Friday. Everyone's going to hear this on a Monday. Don't let that throw you guys. <laughs> Jeff, how are you doing today? Good, man. Good to be here. Very good. I'm about a six, but we'll get through it. No. <laughs> uh, the first story this week, engineers pitch solar-powered lunar arc. University of Arizona researcher Jekin Thanga nailed it. Pretty sure I didn't, though. Wants to build an arc on the moon. The solar-powered arc would store cryogenically frozen seed, spore, sperm, and egg samples from 6.7 million Earth species. They call it, quote, a modern global insurance policy. Logistics are daunting, including cryogenics, quantum levitation, and a robotic staff all working in a 4-billion-year-old lava-formed cavern, but seems realistic. Anna, your thoughts on the future <laughs> of man and women and species in a cave on the moon. Hmm. Pass. <laughs> I don't know. It just it sounds like a action film to me where something goes horribly wrong and then Tim Curry saves us. I don't know. It's, a, it's actually John Cusack. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's Nicolas Cage, probably. <laughs> yeah, he's in everything right now. The more outrageous, the better. Yeah, I don't know. We touched on this last week. I know everyone is super excited about the idea of space. And this researcher is calling the lunar arc a global insurance policy. But in my opinion, if the brightest minds in the world could focus instead on technology like carbon capture and ocean plastic mitigation or something like that, I don't know. I feel like it's more attainable mm -hmm. um, to just actually save Earth before we try to spend billions to bury a time capsule on this alternate site that doesn't actually even have oxygen. So I don't know. I mean, we cover aerospace a lot and I get that people are totally into space exploration, but Debbie Downer over here <laughs> thinks that maybe this is a bit of a diversion. I don't know. Like, you know, Elon Musk is mired in this as much or more than anyone, but like one thing he did do recently was he offered a $100 million cash prize for the person or team who could come up with the best carbon capture technology, which would really have immediate and huge implications for some of our climate goals that we're trying to reach. And I don't know. I like, let's start there. That's my opinion. Let's start there. Like I'm so tired of talking about Mars and the moon and how we can colonize places that like the idea of that is just such a colossal undertaking that we really know nothing about. I just mm -hmm. don't think it's time well spent. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that our culture still needs a couple of uh, fatalist doomsday naysayers out there saying, well, if we don't get our act together, it's going to be the spores on the moon that save us. Uh, Jeff, a commenter on the website, Sid Caesar says, the underlying problem is humans. No amount of technology can save us from ourselves. 
Until humans evolve from greed and power, the threat of ourselves will be with us wherever we go. Sid! Whoa. Calm down, Sid! <laughs> Jeff? It does sound like the dramatic opening of that movie Anna was just talking about. You know, yeah. he's in front of some sort of government body justifying yeah. all of this. The underlying problem. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the quotes that in the story that got me was uh, uh, Professor Thanga um, saying, it's not a crazy big thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is yeah. a crazy big thing. I'm yeah. sorry. It, it <laughs> is. I mean, come on. Yeah. And he's talking about, you know, oh, like 250 <laughs> rocket launches <laughs> to get everything to the moon. Just for a little bit of perspective, that's about six times the number it took to build the International Space Station. Mm-hmm. That is a crazy big thing, first of all. And to Anna's point, I think she nailed it, where we've got some stuff here that we can do to help take care of some of these things. Yeah. Also, they're talking about a lot of theoretical stuff here. He's talking about lava tunnels on the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're gonna frack. <laughs> we're gonna frack the moon. I think is what, <laughs> I mean, what he's saying. I, I don't. I don't think we've had a lot of um, practical application working in lava tunnels on oh. a terrestrial body. Robots. So robots and levitation. Easy. Yeah, Done. I, I think it's it's, <laughs> it's one of those things again where if somebody gets an idea and it's like you know what we gotta do we just gotta save all this stuff mm-hmm. we gotta put it in a safe. What's the safest place we can go to? The moon. So he's just an Earth hoarder. So. <laughs> Yeah. I think there's a lot of um, uh, positive thought that went into this this concept, this idea of what he's trying to accomplish. Yeah. But again, the practicality of it kind of gets in the way, at least for me. Yeah. And I mean, isn't it a surprise that Anna is not about, you know, 250 trips to the moon? Yeah. It's shocking. Yeah, it's so isn't it? me. That's, I mean, it's very shocking. <laughs> yeah. What I what I liked about the professor is that he called it quick back of the envelope calculations. Yep. It's like, yeah, just uh, running the numbers in my head. Um, also that I found it interesting that they want to take 50 samples of each of the 6.7 million species. I mean, I guess it just seems like a lot, but you know, if you're uh, working with a budget. Um, I will say that we do have the 20-minute presentation posted, and A, if you're trying to sleep, really helps with that, good sleep aid, and B, it is just genuinely interesting for a PowerPoint presentation, how he pitches it, other than the whole doom and gloom of the earth and man, you know, failing. Um, other reader, J.D. Reese, no, J.D.S. J.D.S. said, so you have this backup plan on the moon for when we have total failure on earth. If we have enough left for a lunar launch and return trip, then we didn't have a total failure on Earth. So, <laughs> Anna, is that part of it? Whereas uh, we're going yeah, to stash all this there, and then once everything fails, it's like, now how do we get there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Vacuum tubes. We had to eat the rockets, so now <laughs> how do we get there? <laughs> yeah, a giant nanotech vacuum tube clearly is the answer. That will be loaded by robots and uh, shuttled back to the remaining survivors on Earth. Yeah, it's just, it's flawless as a plan, I think. Uh, makes sense, makes sense. Also, uh, can we get the rights for that for Hollywood development? Because you know they're all over that. Yeah, some like uh, self-aware is, uh, monkey like breaks into the lab and <laughs> starts creating, the, I don't know, I, there's so many ways you could take it. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? I'd watch every one of them. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Moving on to the next story. The top 10 safety citations in 2020. In anticipation for the virtual 2021 National Safety Council Conference and Expo, OSHA released the most frequently cited workplace safety violations last year. 
Just going to run down the list. Seems simpler. Number 10 was machine guarding. Number nine, personal protective and life-saving equipment, particularly eye and face protection. Number eight, fall protection, specifically training requirements. Number seven, powered industrial trucks. Number six, lockout, tagout, a podcast favorite. Five, ladders. Four, scaffolding. Three, respiratory protection. Two, hazard communication. And number one, always at the top, fall protection general. Jeff, your thoughts on the uh, list this year? A little bit of shakeup, but not too much. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's we've been doing these countdowns for a while. Uh, mm-hmm. We've been going through these for, for quite some time, and there hasn't been a lot of change. What has always happened year over year, there's always been an increase in the number of violations or citations that were issued. This year, that number dropped for obvious reasons related to COVID. Inspectors weren't going into as many plants or responding to as many <clears throat> complaints issues, um, whatever you want to say. The thing that, that always I circle back to is, and again, I'm not bashing OSHA for being a regulatory sort of policing type agency. Mm-hmm. We're talking like at a minimum, this is $120 million in fines that U.S. manufacturers paid. I'm not saying they were guilty. We're saying they didn't deserve some sort of punitive action here. But again, if we could somehow transition this into providing more you want to say incentives for being safe, but more access to funds to make sure your facility is safe so that you're not making choices between keeping the lights on and providing proper signage or training for, for some of these things. You should be able to do both is my point. So is the one, $120 million, is that the amount in citations or the amount that will be paid? Because my understanding is that a lot of times they get negotiated to you much lower. It can go either way because I, this, is an av- this was a number looking at the average amount of paid citation. Oh, okay. Okay. That's what that would, that's sort of the math there. And it's probably on the low side, to mm-hmm. be honest. I mean, because most of these are going to be higher um, than the average ticket. So, again, just wish there was more that we could do there. We're talking about all this stuff right now in terms of keeping U.S. manufacturing competitive. There's not OSHA <laughs> in India. You know, there's not OSHA in, in China. Yeah. And I'm not saying there shouldn't be, <laughs> but mm-hmm. when we look at keeping U.S. manufacturers competitive and making it cost-effective to manufacture, using some of these programs to not solely as a as a penalty, but also in providing ways to incentivize people to be safer and give them the resources to do so, I think could help minimize. And there, I think we could help drive down this number of citations. It's almost a badge of honor at times when OSHA talks about the number of these violations they found or citations they issued. The focus should be on decreasing them. I, I guess that the overall focus should be on decreasing them, but they're just there have been some historically bad actors that, you know, it seems like the larger penalties are the only things that get them to change. Um, but I definitely do hear plenty about nuisance citations that uh, seem unnecessary. Um, OSHA has definitely struggled. Uh, last year, according to the a recent Wall Street Journal report, the agency couldn't keep up with complaints from manufacturing workers throughout 2020 and was unequipped to manage the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we ran a story this week about how OSHA received 72% more complaints between February 2020 and January 2021 compared to the same period than uh, the previous year. With 57,000 complaints tied to COVID-19 alone, of those 57,000, less than 6% resulted in inspections. So... I guess that's less for you, Jeff. <laughs> um, Anna, Anna, what were you thinking on uh, sort of this update that we saw come out this week? Yeah, I mean, to me, that was kind of the key issue here when we were looking at this list. Um, you know, we always joke about how this list 
stays the same every year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's always fall protection. Number one, uh, you know, the, the, you could go down the line. Those are all the key offenders every year, but this was the year I actually expected it to change a little bit. But then once I learned, as David mentioned about the way OSHA was just drowning in additional complaints during the pandemic, I guess it makes more sense that it largely mirrors years past though. It makes you wonder how true to life this is. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. if you recall back in June, there was some, controversy over the way the agency was handling complaints um, related to COVID. And at the time, the DOL's then Inspector General Scott Dahl admitted that he was surprised um, that OSHA had issued only one COVID-19 related citation out of the thousands of complaints it had received by that time. And then OSHA's administrator said that the investigations could take up to six months so that that was simply reflecting a lag, so to speak. But Dahl basically called BS on that. And mm-hmm. he said, you know, he didn't think it would take that long. And of course, we're learning now via a recent report in the Wall Street Journal that there were more than a thousand worker deaths from COVID-19 that were likely linked to facility transmission of the virus and were never investigated by OSHA as of February of 2021. So there's a huge amount of COVID-related um you know, issues here that don't seem to be reflected on this list at all. Mm-hmm. And it depends on your perspective, what do you, whether you believe that um, OSHA was overwhelmed uh, by the amount of cases uh, as they're, they're alleging. Yeah. Or if you think that they kind of dropped the ball and I believe um, took like a, a lackadaisical approach in it. Cause I, I think that they said that they weren't sure at first if they could enforce some of this stuff related to like PPE and, you know, make it mandatory. They said that they could stress that, that this was, you know, a guidance or whatever. But um, so, you know, there's some maybe shifting of blame here. I'm not sure how much this falls on OSHA, but at the end of the day, I think that this list is maybe not reflective of the true safety incidents and what was occurring in 2020. Um, Some of that stuff's not there. Yeah. I mean, in a true bureaucratic response, they didn't have the right box to check yeah. for a lot of this stuff. So they didn't know what to do. And the result was they didn't do anything. Just no, sad and horrible. If there was ever a year that we needed them, it was this year. And it just seems like they were a deer in headlights. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's, uh, it's frustrating. And, uh, well, I mean... OSHA is always a topic of conversation, no matter where you go, who you're talking to. Uh, third most popular story this uh, this week was a really interesting story about an engineer stealing 2,500 pages of classified info. From July 2016 to May 2019, Isaac Kemp worked as a contractor for the Air Force Research Laboratory and National Air and Space Intelligence Center at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. The base oversees the development of advanced laser and hypersonic weapons, military satellites, and space vehicles. Kemp recently pleaded guilty to taking 2,500 pages of classified data from 112 different documents to his home in Fairborn, Ohio. Now, the only reason this came to light was because local law enforcement discovered documents labeled special access programs when executing a search warrant for an illegal marijuana growing operation. Oops. Man. So Jeff, uh, is the pay that bad for contractors that they need to subsidize (laughs) with an illegal grow? I mean, maybe he was stressed and this was, you know, what do you, uh, that's my medicine (laughs) in the entire pasture. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and my apologies to one of the commenters on the site. Felt I was making light of the fact that basically because he had the right color badge, they didn't look through his bag before mm-hmm. he left. I was not um, insulting our security personnel. I just thought it was kind of funny. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that was the reason he was able to get out of the building basically with all of this stuff is because he had the right color badge. So mm-hmm. they didn't go through his bags or anything like that. I think what's interesting here is the guy had absolutely no intent of doing anything malicious or criminal. Yeah. His feelings were simply that I can, I want to store this at home. Yeah. Which is interesting because you'd think with to get a top secret clearance, which he had, there would have been some personality profiling or something going on here that maybe indicated he had, I don't know, was it a trust issue? What was going on here? Because at this base, I mean, they deal with some pretty significant stuff. We're talking about advanced weaponry. We're talking about space exploration vehicles, things like that. So, um, the lunar arc. Is that, <laughs> that has not, that's still at the research level that hasn't been upgraded yeah. to security clearance. He had the PowerPoint. Yeah. Right. Um, no, I mean, to that point, I feel like I was, as I read about the story, like the guy made a mistake and now he's facing like five years in a federal prison. He did have extensive training, but he could not and could not do those. So, I mean, it does seem excessive, but at the same time, this is real stuff here. And if somebody, in this, you know, some nefarious actor knew that this guy was taking it and basically putting it in his underwear drawer. I mean, yeah, it could have been some problems. Yeah. So Anna, was this a case of him not being clear headed enough, perhaps as a result of his hobbies? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> I, I couldn't speak to that, but um, I do think it's interesting that, you know, like, as you mentioned, the the Department of Justice does not actually cite any sort of like nefarious motive here. Mm-hmm. They're, they're saying that he's not like been using this information for any particular reason. It sounds like he just has it, as Jeff said. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a fair question to ask whether this was just a stupid mistake. Um, but I think it's important to point out that it's the kind of mistake that people keep making. I mean... Nobody took more heat on classified data on private servers than Hillary Clinton. But the Trumps were also accused of like using personal email and, you know, like people of of the highest caliber security clearance in the world make these mistakes. Um, And and why? So, like, I I don't know. I found this report um, by Computer Weekly that they published in 2016, and they talk about how security awareness training is actually astonishingly ineffective. So you talk about how much training this guy has, mm-hmm. but um, they quoted Angela Sass, who's the director of the UK Research Institute in Science and Cybersecurity at UCL. And she said that although some programs are well-crafted, the effectiveness of many is low, the value is doubtful, and they are a waste of time and money, <laughs> especially <laughs> if they simply repeat policies followed by like a multi-choice test. Mm-hmm. Um, but she goes on to say that organizations need to focus on tech solutions that provide alerts and guidance before they even think about changing employee behavior, mm-hmm. with the implication, I think, being that the behavior component is just much, much harder to modify. I mean, you know, Jeff mentioned like maybe he has a trust issue. He felt more secure having these documents on his person, whatever. But, you know, you wonder how many businesses are in similar situations where they offer training programs designed at behavior modification, but they kind of leave it at that. And then they're not considering why that that might not actually be moving the needle at all on security. I had no idea that like there is a proven track record that security awareness training is just like this giant joke almost in the industry that that there needs to be more that's being done there 
I feel like there are some people in the industry like our president of our company where you're not going to find a scrap of paper in that office. But I think there are more people where you could, I feel like you could go through the documents on any desk and all of a sudden you find one and you're just like, whoa, whoa. Uh, that's an invoice from a client that should not be out in the open. I don't, I don't know. I feel like uh, you're right that maybe A, some of this training isn't sufficient, but B, people don't maybe necessarily know uh, how delicate some of these documents are that they're just kind of printing and keeping out. Mm-hmm. Well, no one thinks that they're the problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think there may be a part of this too. This guy has got master's degrees in topics that I know nothing about. Okay, right. I mean, yeah. on very high level um, – physics, mechanical engineering, all that kind of stuff. So to him, maybe it did seem, this is kind of basic stuff. Like, what are we worried about this? Or maybe he had put a lot of personal effort into it and had some of his own, not proprietary information, but his own original ideas that he wanted to keep close in terms of spurring other work. But at the same time, I mean, we're talking about 112 separate documents. So it wasn't just 2,500 miscellaneous invoices and pages here and there. Yeah. It's over 100, 200 page documents. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a lot. This is, this shows a little bit more intent. And I think maybe if, again, I think it was just, this is my work. This doesn't seem that revolutionary to me. So I'm going to take it, but in the wrong hands, you never know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can appreciate the fact that this can become sort of a white noise type of dynamic, but um, <laughs> I don't know when you're working in that type of setting, I yeah. think some of that needs to be more just organic understanding. Yeah. Also it just seems like too much clutter in the home. <laughs> Well, yeah, right. Boxes. Right. Apparently, maybe it didn't bother him. No, no, no. It's a fire hazard. Right. I need my towers of intellectual property around <laughs> me. The second most popular story this week, Scooter Mega Factory will produce one scooter every two seconds. Ola Electric is getting a new factory in India, and it is huge. It is one of the world's largest producers of electric scooters. Now, let's talk about scale. By next year, the company plans to make 10 million scooters, an average of one scooter every two seconds. The mega factory will also be carbon neutral and include a massive solar array. But that is not all, as they also put a two-acre forest into the factory. Hmm. It's being called the most sustainable factory in the world. Anna, we need a tree in here. Yeah, where's our it's right behind you? Forest. Our plant manager. Oh, is, uh, sorry. Actually, you should have seen his expression. He was so offended. Just like, <laughs> I mean, it's behind me. That's why I can't appreciate it. Uh, no, but in terms of uh, sustainability, this has got to be a good step forward, uh, particularly for India. Uh, yeah, I mean, so the factory is like absolutely astonishing in scope, um, and they've said that the ultimate goal, which is an annual capacity of ten million scooters, which is a scooter every two seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, will come via 10 production lines, 10,000 employees, 3,000 AI-enabled robots. Um, So, of course, this is an incredibly ambitious goal. (laughs) (laughs) But what I really love about this story is that it's in India. And Mm -hmm. India gets such a bad rap for its environmental track record. Uh, Of the 10 most polluted cities in the world, nine of them are in India. And the country's industrial revolution has been a dirty one. Uh, They you know, burn trash and tires and to extract minerals and create fuel. And it's uh smog central there. So 
So for this factory, which Ola is calling the most sustainable in the world to be located in India, suggests that maybe the power of global pressure to get on board with sustainable business practices is slowly gaining momentum. Um, and it's not just about what is regulated. Uh, you know, I know that that's a very hopeful take on this, but, I, you know, I'd like to see more of this type of approach to come from these BRIC countries that are kind of bringing up the rear when it comes to carbon emissions, though the U.S. fits in there nicely as well at the rear, lest we forget, <laughs> um, one of the world's biggest polluters. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, it's exciting. I, I know there are some naysayers out there, um, about some of these very lofty goals, but I would I, like to see it work. I got to say that, uh, smog central's industrial revolution has been a dirty one is an expose I will subscribe to <laughs> oh, and okay. watch online every All time. Right. Part-time job. Um, Jeff, does the world need this many scooters? <laughs> so I'm the naysayer that Anna was just talking oh, about. I think, um, I think, I think, actually, <gasps> no. I think Ola Electric is going to be an interesting company to watch. I think we're going to be talking about these guys again, either yeah. for what, what they've been able to pull off here with this factory and the production levels and all that. Or not. Um, <laughs> we'll be talking about them again one because, way or the other. Well, I mean, it is incredibly ambitious. I mean, that factory would be amazing. I mean, yeah. it would be a modern marvel. But Ola Electric, I mean, they, the, the guy who founded the company basically got his money from a ride-sharing um, business through India. Um, basically, kind of like a ske cab scheduling, things like that, that he was able to do. So the next step was to go into this electric scooter production. He's already had to kind of delay the launch of the product twice. Mm. So, and it, it keeps pushing back. The factory is under construction right now. So it's still a bit away from being produced or finished. And when you look at them being able to produce 10 million electric scooters, it's really hard to get a read on exactly what the global demand is right now. Yeah. Uh, the last number I could find was in 2018, there was about 5 million purchased globally mm. on an annual basis. So He's making twice that. Now, there are all sorts of crazy projections out there. And I mean, hopefully for this situation, for India's benefit, for the environment's benefit, all this comes to fruition. But a lot of the projections throw electric scooters in with electric bikes. Mm -hmm. In my mind, I guess I think that's a different consumer. I think those are two different types of purchases. Maybe not. Yeah. But it just seems very ambitious to not only be able to build this type of facility when you don't quite have the product finished yet. You don't exactly know what you're building. And when you're looking at a product that, boy, I don't know if there's that much demand for it. Now, just because they can make that many doesn't mean they're going to, yeah. obviously. They can scale back as necessary. But um, I, th I think this is going to be one to watch because, and I'm probably a little bit more skeptical because I, um, I drank the Foxconn Kool-Aid. Oh, yeah. Like, mm. I thought when they were coming in here, I thought this was going to be huge. This was going to be fantastic. And um, not. Not so, so much. I want to be optimistic here, but there's some there's some interesting red flags to to watch as this kind of develops. But do you think, Jeff, um, you know, you cited some data from 2018. Do you think the pandemic is going to increase the global market for scooters as fewer people want to take public transportation? Because um, I know that like even in the U.S., like bikes and, you know, auto and all that stuff, everything went up kind of a lot. Uh and they said that, that that could be a permanent change. I don't know. This, you know, this company says that they have an eye on export. I think Asia could be a huge market for electric scooters. Um, 10 million, I don't know. That's, you know, that's, I agree, that's got to be proven. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if it's as, as 
dire um, a misfire as maybe you suggest, but I don't know. I'm not going to put any money on it either. Well, no, it's uh, I mean, first of all, I was curious if you have a two acre forest in the factory, do you build around a forest and just kind of hack down all except two acres? I mean, right. Uh, the other thing is that you're talking about some of those outlandish projections that are out there. And, uh, well, luckily I found some of those, Hmm. um, due to rising pollution and government financial incentives. I think that's an important one as well. Uh, that's why scooters are exploding in booming in India. They were exploding. Yeah. Yeah, Stay away from that. We got electric batteries. Right. There was 152,000 in 2019, and they've seen more than 20% growth year over year since 2014. According to a report from Report Linker, 59.1 million motorcycles, scooters, mopeds, all lumped together, will be sold every year by 2027. That is one for every 134 people in the world. So that's a lot of really cool-looking mopeds out there. Uh, previous the pre, And, Anna, to your point about have things adjusted as a result of the pandemic, the previous prediction was 50 million. So it jumped 20, uh, 10 million just because of the influence of the pandemic, mm. possibly. So, and just in the US, the market is an estimated 13.5 million units to be sold this year. That includes motorcycles. Yep. And my other point there, just kind of circling back to what Anna said, even when the growth, if there is that much growth, that much interest in this type of product, You've got some motorcycle makers out there who have already started converting towards electric bikes. Mm -hmm. For them to scale down and do a scooter, if there's a market there, I think they're going to find it. I mean, who would would you trust to build an electric scooter? This Indian company that you really haven't heard of before or Honda? Yeah. I mean, neither. (laughs) You're not a scooter guy? (laughs) No, no, no. I'm going to drive. I'm going to drive my SUV hybrid or I'm just going to use my bicycle. I tried a moped once and it's just... I don't know. They're fun. I look like the rhino on the tiny car. No, <laughs> no. I just, uh, you know, not being a scooter or moped person aside, I know plenty of good scooter and moped people, particularly collectors of the vintage variety. Um, but I don't know. I mean, uh, it just doesn't intrigue me, but I'm one of the other 133 people in the world that aren't going to have one. There you go. Yeah. Um, oh, I totally got that math wrong. Moving on. (laughs) You'll you'll hear about it. (laughs) Man, butchering math since I was a child. uh, The top story this week uh, goes from a a long-running story that we've had, um, particularly uh, for the last few episodes. Multiple cracks found in part of the United Jets engine. The early suspicions was that Wear and tear caused a fan blade to snap inside the engine of the United Airlines plane that had to make an emergency landing shortly after takeoff last month in Denver. Last week, those suspicions were confirmed. This week, those suspicions were confirmed. The National Transportation Safety Board found multiple fatigue fracture origins on the inside of the fan blade, and multiple secondary cracks were found as well. The investigation is ongoing, but the NTSB believes that failed <clears throat> the failed blade broke and sheared off part of the adjacent fan blade, all of which is very, very bad. Jeff, your thoughts on what they found this week? Yeah, I mean, um, I think Anna's going to talk a little bit about the, the maintenance interval, so I'll go a little bit different direction here. You know, we talked last week about recalls, automotive mm-hmm. recalls, and what's kind of spurring the number of those things that are happening. I think one of the big things is the role of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA. 
they get feedback from everybody. Mm-hmm. They get feedback from people who own vehicles, people who fix vehicles, people who sell vehicles, all those folks, as well as the automakers give input when there's a safety concern. Well, it's different with airplanes, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Who's, who are the ones that are going to know the best whether these intervals need to be updated, if there's a problem, if there's something that people need to relate to the NAT, NTSB? Well, that's the folks that fix the aircraft. That's mm-hmm. the people that make the aircraft. So is there sort of a, an ideological issue there? Because if you work for United and you're, you know, your lifeline is fixing these planes, are you going to be the one who raises a red flag and sends something to the NTSB saying, hey, there's a problem. We mm-hmm. need to look at these planes and potentially put them on the ground for a little bit before we fix this, so we can fix this. Well, that's money out of your pocket. That's hurting airlines, which were struggling prior to this. That's hurting Boeing, who has a couple of different issues to work through right now. Mm-hmm. So it seems like to really get a handle on some of these things, because when they happen, they're, just, they're so huge. It's yeah. not like some of the things that happen on the automotive side where the vast majority of the time there is not a fatality involved. There is not a huge incident um, created. Yeah, Obviously with a plane there is. So it just seems like the whole format, the whole way in which we go about servicing or finding issues with aircraft maybe needs to be looked at and evaluated and adjusted because it's always a reactive situation. There doesn't seem to be enough proactive maneuvering taking place on a big scale. Yeah. That would actually be an interesting stat to see like what has more disruption in terms of travel. Um, You know, we did the story on the battery recall that affected 11,000 cars. uh, I believe it was Hyundai uh, last week. Will 11,000 recalled cars affect more travelers than a few hundred airplanes? I feel like the few hundred airplanes is going to have a much larger disruption well, on travel. Think about it. how many people are in a car, how many people are on a plane. Well, I mean, when we're, t- when we're tearing it up, uh, well, two for me. <laughs> uh, Anna, what about, uh, Jeff had mentioned that you were going to talk a little bit about uh, maintenance intervals. Uh, what was your look in terms of how frequently these were inspected? Yeah, well, I mean, first I want to ask Jeff if if uh, was I understanding you correctly when you were saying that that maybe the FAA, a federal agency, doesn't have enough teeth? Is that something that you oh, really man. said? She's needling. Well, they need more public input. <laughs> I do. I agree with you. I think this came up with the MaxJet when it kind of came to light some of the processes and how much the FAA actually relies on aerospace companies to set standards and that maybe that's not good enough. Um, And, you know, likewise, like initially after this incident, the FAA acknowledged that the inspection intervals should be quote stepped up, Mm -hmm. (laughs) stepped up. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for your very specific feedback. But, um, you know, clearly this latest report, I think suggests that the problem with these blades was even worse than they originally suspected. Um, And if you look at the required maintenance interval, uh, this United plane was well within it. The AP report says similar blades were required to be inspected every 6,500 flights. Mm -hmm. And this one had fewer than 3,000 flights. Um, But to reach that 6,500 number, like say this plane takes two flights a day, it would be almost nine years before they reach that number. Oh my So that seems like a long time between inspections of such a critical component and I, you know, I hate to be like a hindsight 2020 person because I am not a, you know, in this industry, but <clears throat> I don't know, in the wise words of my dentist, 
some people don't come in for years and their teeth look pretty good. And then some people come in after six months and it looks like a bomb went off in there. Like, mm. how would you know what kind of stuff you're dealing with if these intervals are so, so widely spaced? It just seems like kind of a risk. Well, and uh, first of all, as a person uh, that the bomb goes off in his mouth, that's definitely I'm on that side. Every you, six months. That you could a, be a podcast. Yeah. David's Dental Adventures. <laughs> yeah, right. The many cars that parked yeah. in my mouth. Um, working title. Um, the one thing I was, you know, we had talked about it before and actually talking about the intervals. I think when they initially started, said that they needed to be inspected more. Didn't they say like they they still brought it down to like every 1,000 flights? Like, yeah. I mean, they cut it drastically, but it was still like every 1,000 flights, which seems like still a long lag in between. Um, to rephrase this point last week where there needs to be, not only do they need to be more frequent, but there are much more powerful maintenance tools out there. And, uh, you know, sometimes cost-cutting measures, these tools aren't necessarily used. And that's something that, especially when they're so such a mission critical part, like an engine. Um, maybe we need the best tools out there available on the market to make sure everything stays safe. I don't know. Um, all right, moving on to in case you missed it. Uh, this is the segment of the show where essentially we cover a few stories that weren't necessarily the most popular, but could have a really big impact on the industry going forward as well. Uh, Anna, I wanted to go to you first. What was your in case you missed it this week? Yeah, so uh, the story that I found to be pretty compelling on our site this week was a new announcement from Volkswagen, Um, and the company is clearly trying to build a buzz around its new, what it's calling its software dream car in development. Mm -hmm. Um, The the project title is Project Trinity, Mm -hmm. and I was actually surprised we got so little feedback on this story because I figured it would be sort of controversial. Mm Mm-hmm. So VW is basically working on simplifying its production in order to cut costs and says that it believes the future of vehicles may lie in the concept of on-demand pay-per-use vehicle features. So it lays out the idea of producing one model um, that's feature-rich instead of customizing it in like a million different trim levels. Mm -hmm. And then instead of charging you for those features up front, the buyer has the option of later enabling something like all wheel drive, for example, and using it for a particular stretch of road maybe, and then pay for that use. So it's almost like you're, you know, like renting a movie. And I think this might be appealing for some consumers who like the idea of subscription services and not like owning things. But in this case, I don't know. I, I don't love residual costs. I'm the type of person who like when I buy a car, that loan like haunts me Mm -hmm. and I do everything I can to pay it off early. And then I just drive that car into the ground, right into the ground. And, um, I don't know, like, do you guys feel this approach? Like, I, I think it implies that the initial acquisition cost for the vehicle itself would be lower because Mm -hmm. the company's manufacturing is simplified significantly. But does that mean, is it, does that mean it's actually cheaper for them to produce all fully loaded vehicles than to make some not as good ones to sell? (laughs) Like, can't they just sell everyone a better car to begin with? Like there has to be something (laughs) I'm missing here. About the economics of auto production. Like, what is it? Does that make sense to you? To me, like my uh, immediate reaction to this was it was 100% marketing spin where it's just like they basically found a way to be much more efficient. And they're like, wait a second, but this is also a benefit for you. And this is how (laughs) you're going to pay for this benefit. The other thing that really kind of got me was is like as a subscription service, is this something where you're just going to get billed and it's going to be like your credit card or not your credit card, your, uh, your cell phone where all of a sudden you go over yeah. and then you get that like surprise bill where you're like, 
Hey, hey. Uh, we didn't turn on Wi-Fi when we were streaming for that weekend. Um, <laughs> because I think of how many times features in my car work and I don't know they're working until the I see the light flickering off. Uh, particularly like... Uh, the anti-slip uh, when you're going over a puddle or over a pothole. I mean, is that something where anytime that feature kicks in in my car, like they're just like, and another minute of service there. And mm-hmm. here's your bill at the end of the week or at the end of the month. Uh, I don't know. Like, yeah. Do you have to like manually enable everything? Do you have to like um, click like three boxes and prove that you're not a robot before you can turn on your windshield wipers? <laughs> before you turn on your airbags? Yeah. <laughs> I swear I'm not. A, I, I thought I clicked all the cars and all the boxes. I'm How sorry. How many of these squares have traffic lights? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff, what, uh, what about you? I like it. Yeah. I think it's a cool idea. Jeff, now, get I think out of here. <laughs> can, uh, can, I, can I talk now? You can. All right. Um, can we shut off Anna's mic? So, no. Um, <laughs> I deserve so, it. <laughs> um, I think it's cool for a couple different reasons. Number one. I think as vehicles have gotten easier to drive, people have become worse drivers. So I think Mm -hmm. understanding all the functionalities of a vehicle might make people more aware in terms of what they have, what it means, if they don't have it, and maybe just make them pay attention more to what they're operating. Because it's still a 2,000-pound piece of metal that's traveling 45, 50 miles an hour at least. So I I like it from that perspective. I also, from a... As a parent who's got three teenagers, two of which are, or all three of which are really just beginning to learn how to drive, I kind of like the thought of just having like parental controls yeah. <laughs> to help yeah. them be better drivers as they're learning. And as they progress and get better and more reliable, then you can start turning things on. So I, I kind of like some of those functions or, or features or whatever. Um, I also think it would, from a cost perspective, make a lot of sense because I think there is a lot of costs with modern vehicles that the typical car buyer may not want or need. Mm-hmm. Being able to take those out, reduce the price, I think it would maybe be help us be safer drivers, more cost conscious. Um, no, I, I like it. I think it could be a cool idea because I think you're looking at more digital technologies. Now, a lot of those things are controlled by software regardless. Yeah. But um, no, I like it. I think I see it as making a safer car and then nickel and diamond you for like almost like a SAS well, You have to pay attention, it. David. I do pay attention. That's why I'm like, what do I need? No, I don't need the feature that gives me the cup of coffee the fifth time I go over do the line. Do we need to go through your Amazon purchasing habits? No. Nope. Okay. We'll just stick with the, the stick horses. <laughs> Stay out of there. My, in case you missed it this <laughs> week, um, was a really cool story about new soft contact lenses that can monitor, monitor diseases uh, just by being on your eye. Um, we cover a lot of really cool developing emerging technology. And I thought this was one in particular as I've had some, uh, people in my family and my wife's family that have had issues with their eyes. Basically, uh, you can monitor a lot about your health through the eye, but, and they've tried doing this previously and they were very rigid, uh, hard contact lenses that were very uncomfortable. Uh, now they've made a soft contact lens. There's still like a funky looking wire going through it in the prototype that, uh, was freaking Anna out. But, uh, I think as technology continues to evolve, when it comes to um, monitoring your own health, this is something that could have potentially really cool impacts for people going forward, not just monitoring their eye health, but their overall health. Um, And I just, you know, there are a lot of those wearable technologies are trying to make like smart textile stuff like that, where I just think maybe not necessary Uh, when something like this, and it talks about like maintaining, improving, helping your eyesight, uh, I don't know. That's just something that I find to be particularly important. And uh, I know that 
the photo freaked you out. I wanted to try and like shoot it over to you just so we could get your reaction. No, I mean, I'm glad that you explained the story because I did not read it because it was too gross. (laughs) (laughs) Because you couldn't get past. I uh, couldn't. It was, it was like, uh, for those of you at home who didn't see, um, the image was like somebody's eyeball up close and then like a metal rod being poked into it. It was horrifying. It wasn't a metal rod. It was was, a metal rod. It's a sort of a, maybe like a rigid plastic. No, but it's, uh, it's now going into, um, human trials, I believe. Um, let's see. Yeah. Human trials. And you know, Jeff, I don't know. I've always, of all my senses, the eyes were the one I was hoping to keep the longest. I think anybody, right? I don't think that's, yeah, I think, you know, uh, Maybe as you I think there's a would you rather there. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's a would you rather there. Yeah. I don't know. I thought the, the text cool. Anything more that we can do to keep an eye on our health? Oh. Um, <clears throat> pun is, counter. Uh, it's a great thing. <laughs> uh, Jeff, what was your in case you missed it this week? So a little bit lighter note, seeing as how we kind of had some bummer stories here a little bit. <laughs> We're saving eyes. We're saving eyes here. I wasn't talking about that one. I was oh, okay. talking more about planes and oh, yeah. stuff. Um. Do you guys know, and you maybe you do because we have run stuff on Lego before, but do you know what the Danish translation, because it is a Danish company, Lego, do you know what that stands for Mm-mm. in Danish? Brick. Play well. Oh. That's perfect, right? Yeah, it's awesome. Nice. Yeah. Also, unintentional, do you know what it translated to in Latin, the word Lego? Hmm. Ah, limb? I assemble. Oh, man, I'm way Totally what? unintentional, and, yeah. they, and they landed it. So my story was basically um, Lego has seen a huge boost in business. Mm-hmm. Um, analysts are saying it has to do a lot with the COVID stuff. Kids are at home. They're playing with Legos, which I think is awesome because Legos were definitely one of my favorite toys. I don't know. You guys got smart kids. Mm-hmm. Lego's a big part of what they do? or We have. We're still at the big Lego stage. Yeah, the Duplo stage. Yeah. Same. Okay. But, but we uh, do have, uh, we also have uh, family that is unaware of the swallowing hazards presented by small Legos. Um, Actually, we had, we just lost a minifig's hair the other day, and we're not certain if it was lost in an in-body scenario. So (laughs) we're still working through, we're literally working through it. Working through it. (laughs) Yeah. um, No, but I think, I think it's a really cool story. Yeah, I thought it was cool. Lego says they, um, again, analysts are saying it was a lot because the kids are at home ordering. Lego says they were able to increase sales by $1.6 billion over the past year Whoa. because of things that they've done on an e-commerce level. Mm-hmm. Simply being in more places, being more visible, being able to fulfill more quickly. Yeah. So here you've taken a company which, quite honestly, over the last couple of years has definitely had its ups and downs. Mm-hmm. Um, has made a lot more money lately off of licensing yeah. in terms of like movies and, and TV shows and things like that. But um, this was related very closely to Kids buying more Legos, which I think is uh, an awesome toy. I um I can remember we always joke because my oldest daughter liked to build the towers, and my younger daughter liked to knock them over. So oh, yeah. we had lots of fun drama with Legos uh, when they were younger. No, that's uh to be the favorite uncle. All I have to do is buy any Harry Potter themed Lego set, deliver it to my niece, and she talks. Just it's good. It's good. Oh, um, I want to say that I did forget that the team of researchers on the new contact lens technology is from Purdue University. In case you're interested in checking that out, and the study was in Nature Communications. Um, very cool. And on the licensing, Lego is also crushing it when it comes to just adults in general. Like the big, uh, my aunt just received the one two three Sesame Street set that you can build. Uh, also, Muppets transition to great minifigs, and uh, the, some of those sets are on point. I mean, for yeah. me, it was just 
when we grew up, we got the bucket of Legos and it was just your imagination or bust, you know, like mm-hmm. the, I mean, these booklets that these yeah. kids are following step-by-step step is incredible. Some of them, it's like building a model. They're mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah. No, I just found out my uh, neighbor is an avid model builder. I was like, hey, what are you working on out there? The siding? He's like, uh, no, I'm uh, actually just sanding one of the engines on the Serenity from Firefly. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> like, of course I do. We're going to be friends. <laughs> uh, very good. So uh, final thoughts this week. Um, I wanted to start off with a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of feedback that we got from the last episode. Uh, and this one came back from a guy that is called Zimmerl, Zimmerl, Zimmerly. And he said, oh, let me see if I get this right. David is right. Jeff and Anna are wrong. He used exclamation points. It's wow. weird that you chose this. <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he says Reese's is chocolate and peanut butter. And parents are allowed to parent tax roughly 25%. On the trick or treat bucket, so I agree. A, he's half sorry right. guys, he's and, half right. <laughs> yeah, do you guys think about it like a twenty five percent split? Because I know that I'm I'm on the seventy five, <laughs> but younger kids, younger kids. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, Jeff, what's your final thought this week? Um, I'm actually really excited looking ahead because uh, this time of year means college basketball to me, mm-hmm. and we're doing the NCAA tournament this year, which I think is awesome for numerous reasons. So I am. Very excited to play a little hooky Thursday afternoon and play yeah. some basketball. Are the Badgers even going to be in it? Oh, yeah. Yeah? yeah. Okay, one and done. Uh, Anna, your final thoughts this week? Uh, back to the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. I, <laughs> I can't believe how much time I spent debating this, but um, I wanted to throw in to you guys that my dad bought me um, to try the, like, Coke with coffee combination thing Hmm. how did that turn out uh it's it's really it's not as bad as i thought it would be but it is still terrible (laughs) uh so just so you know about that there's Um, one sponsorship opportunity definitely down the yeah Yeah. (laughs) we just (laughs) lost that one yeah yeah no that's uh i actually i uh Want to reach out to the company, see if we can get product samples to try try of the peanut butter cup. Oh, we are definitely going to do that. Not Coke and coffee because I appreciate both the companies and what they're trying to do as maybe a partnership, but gross. Yeah, it's Seems not like working for either, either one. Uh. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll work on our palate choices. And uh, I guess the last thing I just wanted to say was, to everybody listening, everybody watching, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. And to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Please keep the uh, feedback coming. We really do appreciate it, and it helps us as we move forward. Also, if you want to make sure that you receive the podcast, you can subscribe to our newsletter on our website, IEN.com or manufacturing.net. Uh, thank you both very much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. And... Uh, For Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti, and this has been the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Have a good one. Nah, we'll see you next week. I like that one better. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.